Welcome to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. With your host, Steve Garrett, moderator of the world's largest Corvette website, CorvetteForum.com. MC and DJ at one of the largest Corvette weekends in the country, Corvette Fun Fest. President of the Corvette Club of Kansas City, Missouri. And radio disc jockey at the number one radio station in Kansas City for over 40 years. Here's Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. I appreciate you tuning in. You can listen to Corvette Today on all sorts of platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, now iHeartRadio, Anchor.fm, Breaker, Public Radio, Pocket Casts, and Overcast. You can also listen on your smart device. Just say, hey, Alexa, or hey, Google, play the podcast called Corvette Today, and you're connected. Also, visit my new website, CorvetteTodayPodcast.com. You can sign up for Corvette Today notifications, updates, and information also at CorvetteToday.ck.page. I'd like to thank our flagship sponsors of Corvette Today, Hendrick Chevrolet of Kansas City. Hendrick Chevrolet is the largest seller of Corvettes in the Kansas City area, and they ship nationwide. Visit ChevyUSA.com or call 913-384-1550. That's 913-384-1550. Another flagship sponsor of Corvette Today is MidEngineCorvetteForum.com. If you'd like to join this new vibrant forum that focuses on the new mid-engine C8 Corvette, it's absolutely free to join this friendly community. You'll meet a lot of fellow Corvette enthusiasts like yourself at midenginecorvetteforum.com. On Corvette Today, I have a friend of mine that you know. You've seen his face. You know his voice. He has been with Meekum Auctions since 2006 as the Director of Company Relations. He's also the company spokesperson for any public event that Meekum does. He's in a classic rock band called Redline 7000. He's the lead TV commentator and analyst for Meekum Auctions that you watch on television on NBCSN. Also, I consider this guy a walking encyclopedia of car knowledge. Meet my friend, John Craman. John, welcome to Corvette Today. Steve, I am so glad that you invited me to be on your podcast. I have been literally a lifelong Corvette fan, and it's one of my favorite car topics to talk about. So once again, thank you so much, brother. Buddy, I'm so glad you were here. Talk about when you got to be a car person. Was it an early age? I know you grew up in Los Angeles where cars are just abundant, but talk about when you became a car guy and then a Corvette guy. Yeah, my mama used to tell the story that it was about two years old. I became obsessed with cars and had a lot of small cars, Tootsie Toy cars at the time growing up in the 50s and 60s in Southern California, L.A., like you mentioned, exposed me even more so than folks from other regions of the country as that was sort of the hotbed of innovation. I remember my first Corvette. I was maybe seven years old. It was a 63 split window. It was saddle tan. How do I remember that? I don't know. Saddle interior, for sure for leather interior. And it was an automatic. I remember looking in there and seeing the quadrant, uh, even though the automatics in 63 looked like a manual shifter at first glance. I remember this little kid looking in and seeing the P-R-N-D-L and realizing it was an automatic. And that has stuck with me my entire life. Probably like a lot of guys and gals out there, it was that Stingray, the C2, the first one that just stopped me flat in my tracks. I've said it before on the podcast, John, I'll say it again. The 63 split window is what brought me into the Corvette world as well. 
And it's such a shame yeah. that they only did it for one year. Well, yeah, and there's there's a lot of history written about that, how it came to be with obviously with that split back window and the fact that it was pretty much other than the cool styling that it has, pretty much hated by everybody from a practical standpoint as it made it difficult to see out the rear window. And the fact that all these years later now, of course, that's the coupe body style that a C2 fan wants to own. In fact, it's the only run of the C2 Corvette, which was 63 through 67, where the coupe has more value, everything else being equal, than the convertible. And so I think that says a lot for that styling cue. Instantly identifiable and one of the top probably two or three most significant cars to come out of the 1960s for sure. That's true. And I just think it's a travesty because I remember hearing stories, John, of people cutting out that spine and making it look like a 64 through 67. Well, and I had, this is a really cool story. I had dinner late last year with a name that pretty much all your listeners are going to recognize. The last name is Barris, as in George Barris, the car customizer that's Southern California icon. Of course, he's passed away now, but with his daughter, his daughter, uh, Joji, and uh, her husband, Barry, and my wife, Christine, and I all had dinner at a historic Los Angeles restaurant called The Smokehouse in Burbank. Been there since the late 1940s. And she told me stories going back to Barris Custom City in the mid-1960s where customers were bringing in their 63 Corvettes, dropping them off, and they had the procedure in place to remove the rear window split for exactly the reasons that you mentioned. It was sort of the thing to do. But kind of cringe to think of that today, but yeah, it was common back in the 60s. JK, it hurts my heart to hear that story. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, oh my gosh. Now, is your wife a Corvette person too? Does Christine like Corvettes? Yeah, it's really cool because, oh, five or six years ago, we decided that we're going to get Christina fun car. Unfortunately, she can't drive a manual shift. She's tried. Good driver, but just could never wrangle the manual shift cars. So we went on a search for a car, and it came down for a fun car. And, of course, we were going to try to buy it at a Mecham auction. So we narrowed it down. I said, you really got to think hard. We have a six-car garage. We have five cars. We've got room for one. So you're going to pick your dream car other than your daily driver. And we narrowed it down, and this is very generic, to a Thunderbird or a Corvette. Not a bad couple of choices to go with. True. So I told her, I said, okay, cool. I said, that's great. I said, so Thunderbird and Corvette, but if it had to be one or the other, you couldn't have both. You got to narrow it down to one. And almost immediately she said Corvette. So here's what we did. We went on a search. And I think your listeners, especially the Corvette folks, are going to find it maybe a little bit unusual, the direction that we decided to go on the search. Here's what we did. We chose 1971 through 1973 as the choice. It needed to be an automatic, of course, for the reasons that I had mentioned earlier. 71 and 2s specifically because they were chrome bumper cars, both front and rear, and they were the first to be able to use the low-lead slash unleaded fuel that was starting to become in vogue in the early 70s. I wanted a car we could run it on pump gas. Uh, 70s and earlier, you need to do add octane booster, higher octane fuel, some lead or lead substitute or many other ways to kind of get around that. So weren't too concerned about ultimate performance. A base 350 would be fine. And what we did find after a couple of years, this was at Mecham Kissimmee 2016, we bought her a Ontario Orange Fire Mist Metallic Bloomington Gold car with 29,000 miles saddle interior. It's a coupe. We love the coupes, T-tops, with just a handful of options. Of course, the base 350, turbo hydromatic 400 automatic power steering, power brakes, and AMFM radio. And that's a car that is her pride and joy, part of our permanent collection. 
and really lucky we live in Illinois, and Illinois allows for year of manufacture license plates. So we have an authentic 1972 license plate on the back of the car, completely legal, by the way. And so it really is a time capsule in all those ways. Mission accomplished. Love that story. What a great, th- I'd love to see that car, John. Man, that sounds awesome. Number one color, Steve, in 1972 was an Ontario orange metallic. And the people that see the car out in the sunlight, it just really looks great. People literally, if it's at a show or at a cruise or anything like that, anybody just walking by will just typically stop and just gaze at it. it that color really works on the lines of that car. Probably why it was the number one color in 1972. So that one is going to be part of our collection. Not the only Corvette we have, but that one is going to be part of our collection permanently. It's never going to go anywhere. Talk about the other Corvettes in the garage, John. Well, the other one I have is a 2010, an interesting year. That's a C6. It's an LS3, which is the 430-horse 6.2 liter legendary engine now. That's the engine of choice for transplants and retrofit into the modern era with resto mods and right. touring cars, of course, factory equipped. Yeah, six-speed manual. I'm a stick shift guy. It is blade silver metallic with the ebony interior. It's a coupe. Again, we do like either key tops or the removable target tops. It's a 1LT, and the only option it's got are the factory chrome wheels. And I drive it about three or 4,000 miles a year. It's a fair-weather driver only, and it has never been driven in the rain. You know, I wash it. I'm not afraid to put water on it, but it's never been driven in the rain. It's my baby, my fair weather driver. When I bought it, it was a year old with 4,000 miles. Wow. And uh, it was always intended it to be a long-term keeper, keep it forever. But something has developed within the past year that's kind of made me have to make a very, very hard decision on how many vehicles I'll be able to own and keep in our garage. Why don't you elaborate on your order that's coming up? Well, we go back to those of us uh, remember July of 2019. The big news was going to be the reveal of the Corvette out in Tustin, California. It was going to be streamed out for everybody to be able to watch it. And it was going to be the first time that we got a glimpse of other than spy shots and the camouflage cars that were out there of what this new mid-engine Corvette was going to be all about. Long story short, Katie Osborne, a floor reporter with me on the announce team at Meekum Auctions on NBCSN, and I got access to the reveal in July of 2019. We were there, and when those cars were revealed and we got to see the cars on the stage for the very first time, and then after that... We actually got a chance to get up close and walk up next to the cars. They captivated the entire audience, including myself. So right on the spot, I immediately decided that I wanted one of those cars. And when I got home, I uh, placed my order. And unfortunately, with the delays of the strike that occurred last year, and now, of course, under the COVID shutdown, the plant, I'm not sure when I'm going to get it, but I have ordered a Elkhart Blue Metallic with the Sky Cool Gray interior, a 1LT coupe, not a convertible, with just uh, four factory options. Performance exhaust, which takes the horsepower from 490 to 495. Red painted calipers really give it a nice pop against that Elkhart Lake Blue Metallic. Chrome badges are an option, a $100 option, replacing the carbon flash badges, just adding a little bit more contrast against that Elkhart Lake Blue Metallic color. So it's 61885 is the window sticker on that C8 Corvette. It's actually the lowest price C8 that I've heard of anybody having on order. 
we've got our fingers crossed that it's going to come in and, and my beloved Blade Silver 2010 C6 will be going probably on the Mecham auction block when I have an idea of when that C8 is going to come in. Wow, that'll be a historic event, John. Yeah, because it was a car, Steve, that probably like a lot of us, I know you've got your 14 uh, first year of the C7. Can you imagine the difficulty of letting that car go should you decide to sell that car? I really wrestled with it. My wife said, well, you, you can keep it. It's really not an affordability issue. But where are you going to put it? And if you have a brand new C8, do you think you'll really want to continue to drive the C6? Of course, we know the C8s are automatic transmission only. Right. Although the technology in the automatic, we call it an automatic. It's an automated manual. It's a completely different world. It's not a slang term slush box. Right. I would prefer a conventional manual between you and me, but it's not a deal breaker. So I don't know. I mean, will I still pine for a traditional three-pedal Corvette experience with more of kind of an analog feel than a modern digital feel? I don't know. But as it stands right now, I'm going to put the C6 onto the market when I get clarity on when that C8 might be delivered. Probably, hopefully, maybe this summer. We've got my fingers crossed. I got my fingers crossed for you, too, buddy. And you know what? I've always said the dual-clutch transmission, it's still a manual. You just don't shift between the people sitting in the car. You shift it up on the steering column. Yeah, and like a lot of people, I've, well, I haven't had a chance to drive the car yet. I've sat in it and seen it quite a few times. Haven't had a chance to drive it, but a lot of the videos that I've seen that are out there on YouTube, everybody's just raving of the way that that transmission operates. I know they ran through a few rounds of tweaking to get the software just right. It looks like in the production version, they've got that transmission near perfected where it's getting rave reviews and very favorably compared to the other world-class automated manuals that are out there and coming out of the gate in the first crack. I think they've nailed it with that transmission. I think you're right. Kudos to them. This Tremec dual-clutch transmission looks like... It's almost bulletproof. Steve, what did you, when you first heard about this mid-engine Corvette for a long time, but I'm curious, you're a lifetime Corvette guy like I am. Right. What were your thoughts when you first saw the car? I'm just curious to hear your summary of the styling, the value point, all the parameters that make that car so hot right now. I'm an aesthetics guy, John, so I really liked the look of the car. I knew it was going to be a lot different because we're moving the engine from the front to behind the driver. So I knew it was going to look like Ferrari. It was going to look like Porsche to a certain degree, although Porsche has basically had a body style that's been unchanged for the last 50 years. But I like the body style. And being a moderator on Corvette Forum in the C8 section, you get guys complaining about, oh, the rear end looks terrible. <sighs> I think it looks good. I really, really like it. With the dual-clutch transmission, here's the ironic thing. Everybody complains, we need a dual-clutch transmission. Now that we have a dual-clutch transmission, everybody's complaining, we still need a manual. It's like, it's not going to happen, guys. I asked Taj about that directly when we were at the birthday bash at the National Corvette Museum. Nobody's ordering manual transmissions anymore. As a matter of fact, here's a perfect example, and I think I talked about this in another earlier podcast. The last year of the Lamborghini Gallardo, the last year they made it, do you know how many requests and orders they had for the manual transmission? One. One. Everybody else wanted the e-brake or the e-transmission, the electronic transmission. So even with the Lamborghini Gallardo, they had one order for a manual transmission. That's the way of the future. The guys that want the manual transmission are not going to be able to get it. Yeah, I think the statistics in regard to the C7, which ran, of course, 14 through 19, were about the split between automatics and manuals were about 50-50 in 2014 by the end of the C7 run in 2019. 
it had gone about 80% automatic and about 20% manual. So another good point that just the demand wasn't there for them to be able to justify all the expenditure and a compromise of actually the structure of the car when in fact, and again, you're talking to a conventional three-pedal manual transmission guy since day one for me, but understanding that the technology is such now and the performance and efficiency, these automated manuals are superior. Are they more fun to drive? That's a whole nother topic of discussion. I think from a driver engagement standpoint, I think a conventional three-pedal manual is still the way to go. But I never once, Steve, hesitated towards my enthusiasm of the C8 because it was no longer offered with a conventional manual. Did not impact my decision at all. That design of that car, the style of it, this comparison to the Ferrari, you know, gee, it looks like a Ferrari. Mm -hmm. I look at it as such as the front-engine Ferraris. Yes, it does look like a mid-engine Ferrari in profile, just like an SUV or a pickup truck generically looks like all the other ones too from a distance, from a profile. You look at the front engine Ferraris that are currently in production, and they to me look like a C7 Corvette. I'm not trying to be controversial on that comment, but at first glance, I really have to look twice from a distance at a front engine Ferrari and a C7 Corvette to be able to tell the difference. So I think what it comes down to is just packaging. A mid-engine car or a front engine sports car, a two-seater, is going to have a certain packaging and profile that has has to be designed under that. Is anybody confused the new C8 Corvette for a Ferrari once they see one out on the road? I don't think so. No. I think that there's enough Corvette essence that I think that they baked into that car to make it distinctively Corvette, even though it is a radical new mid-engine car. Interesting that when I saw the first C7 at Mike Yeager's Corvette Fun Fest uh, back in the day, it knocked me over as well from a styling standpoint. And I had my C6 at the time, but it didn't say okay, let's get rid of the C6 and let's jump into a C7, which kind of surprised me and pleased me because there's one less major decision and emotional situation that I had to deal with. Seeing the C8, seeing it be unveiled and then standing next to the car and seeing just what magic that car just imparts is a feeling that I don't ever want to give that up. That's why I want one in my garage. Well, John, I hope it comes sooner than later. I'm looking forward to seeing your car in person. I know. I've had a chance out on the road to see a couple of C8s, a black one, a Z51 2LT was actually getting gas a couple weeks ago. And uh, I social distanced the fellow and uh, told him that if he had a couple minutes, I'd love to hear his impression of his car. And he did. It was his first Corvette. He picked it up at the museum. He did wow. the museum delivery and then drove the car up to Illinois, his home, and put about 500 miles, which, as we know, is the break-in period for the computer to unlock developing full performance. And that was all sort of part of his plan. And he could not have been more impressed and lavish with the ride qualities, the build quality. He loved the museum delivery, so that was fantastic. Even though it was under the COVID restrictions, they had a program in place for that to be able to successfully do that. And I really appreciated getting some firsthand comments from somebody with no agenda that had literally just picked his car up and over two days had put 500 miles on it. It just made me want mine even that much more. And he was a first-time Corvette owner as well. That's really, really cool. Yeah, and a guy really, I think, Steve, fitting the demographics that the Corvette marketers want. He was a financial advisor, I would say probably in his 40s, huh. who had had primarily European luxury cars prior to that. So this was a car that I think tapped into the European exotic yearnings that he had at a more affordable price point. 
And I think that's one of the, that's not the only demographic that Chevrolet is looking for, but that was one that they wanted. They wanted to try to make this car more accessible to a wider range. And I, I'm going to say once again, I think that they nailed that one as well. I think so too. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up in segment two and segment three, we're going to talk to John Craman a little bit more about Corvettes and the Mecham Auction and how you can buy a Corvette at the Mecham Auction anywhere in the country. You're listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. Yogi Berra once said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll probably end up there. At True Wealth and Company, we take that to heart. See, at True Wealth and Company, we believe your retirement lifestyle travels through two doors. Door number one, the blue door, gives you more options, financial freedom. Your money outlives you. Door number two, the red door, is where you outlive your money. You rely on your family, friends, or even the state to take care of you. The best way to walk through the blue door is to have a written plan. 913-653-8783 or online at retirewithtrue.com. Investment advice offered through True Wealth & Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas. This is the Corvette Today podcast with Steve Garrett. You're listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. Today, we have John Craman with us. John, you will know from the Mecham Auctions on NBCSN. John is a walking encyclopedia of car knowledge, and he's a Corvette enthusiast. He is the co-commentator for all the Mecham Auctions with Scott Hoke on NBCSN. John, let's talk about, in segment two here, about Corvette's in the Mecham auction, because I know that you and I have talked about this, and you told me that Corvettes make up a huge percentage of sales at Mecham auctions. They do, Steve. The single largest model of cars sold in the Mecham auction are Corvettes. That would be approximately 10% of the total inventory. And when we're talking about an annual number of cars in the 20,000 range entries, that would be about 2,000 Corvettes making Mecham auctions, of course, the world's largest seller of vintage uh, and contemporary Corvettes at auction. And the Corvette interest and the connection goes way back to the Bloomington Gold days, where for quite a long period of time, Dana Meekham, the president and founder and still very active with Meekham Auctions, his company founded back in 1988, actually owned Bloomington Gold and had uh, sold that to Guy Larson, the current owner of it. Wow. And we still have a very good relationship. There's a lot of synergy between Bloomington Gold and Meekham. In fact, we have a Bloomington Gold display and Guy Larson at most of the Meekham auctions to tie in the best of both of those Corvette-heavy organizations. But very, very important part of what Meekham Auctions does is the dominance and the success we've had over the years of both for buyers and sellers with Corvettes. And it's not all about necessarily Corvettes on the high end. They're the ones that get all the attention, but affordable Corvettes as well. You know, we've seen some pretty nice primarily Generation 4 cars, mid-1980s as an example, Five or six thousand dollars will get you into a pretty nice, high quality driver. Great way to get into the Corvette market on a budget, and then of course, any other steps along the way, we got them covered as well. JK, talk about some of the more memorable Corvettes that you remember that have been sold at the Meekham auctions because there have been Corvettes that have been sold for millions of dollars, right? Yeah, you start getting into the holy grail of Corvettes, other than, of course, the Corvette Grand Sports from the early 60s that we've never had yet cross the Mecham auction block. The next tier down from that, and not too far down from it, were the L88s. The 1967 L88 in particular, only 20 of those cars were built. We've sold a couple of those over the years. In fact, we've had two or three that I can recall. Three of the 20 that were built have crossed the Mecham auction block with the most memorable was a Marlboro Maroon convertible that we had sold several years ago at one of our Texas auctions where the very well-known Corvette collector owner at the time had a highly publicized case of cancer, unfortunately, 
He'd owned the car for many years. It came up onto the Mecham auction block with him behind the wheel of the car for the very, very last time. We were all teared up, those of us calling the action on the TV show that had gotten a chance to be warned that this was going to be a very emotional moment. So I got to say, you know, one of the 20 L88 convertibles, or one of the 20 L88s, not all were convertibles, some were coupes, continue to be sort of the high watermark for the significant cars. Those listeners that might not know what makes the L88 so special, it really is all about the power plant. It was essentially a race engine that was almost secretly available as a regular production option, featuring a lot of internal engine modifications, very aggressive camshaft, big Holley carburetor, but most notably, they were all equipped with aluminum cylinder heads. And these engines were dominant on road courses and Corvettes, did pretty good in drag racing as well, only ran through 1969. And to this day, anytime I hear L88, I get all excited. My ultimate dream car of all time, undisputed, would be a 1967 Corvette with an L88. Not going to happen because they're worth in the multiple millions of dollars, but man, that would be the car to have. The rumble of that engine, the tick of the solid lifters, the response of that engine. How do I know that? Actually had some experience, not unfortunately behind the wheel of a L88 Corvette, but an L88 powered oval track car. Wow. Uh, back in the 1970s, I worked for a prominent speed shop in the Midwest called Sterling Speed and Engineering, where we were very well known for building high-performance circle track engines. And two very well-known racers, a guy by the name of Joe Shear and Dave Watson, were legends in the Midwest with their Camaros. And they were sponsored by a Chevy dealer in Beloit, Wisconsin, who supplied them with L88 engines that our speed shop, Sterling Speed Engineering, would actually put together. And I was the cylinder head guy. I remember both Joe and Dave driving in their 65 Bel Air station wagon and unloading bone stock L88 parts in the boxes and in the packaging. And we would assemble those engines and then go out and watch these guys race these cars at very short tracks around the Midwest. And then one night I got the chance to do some hot laps in Joe Shear's number 36 L88 powered Camaro. And it was an incredible experience. The sensation and the sound and the throttle response and the power of that engine, unbelievable. About 550 horsepower or so. We never dynoed the engines, but we guesstimated power to be around 550 horsepower for a normally aspirated kind of an old school 427. That's still pretty competitive even by today's standards. Absolutely right. John, is there a Mecham auction that seems to have a little bit more Corvette orientation than some of the others? The consistency of about a 10% Corvette mix is fairly consistent throughout the auctions. But what we see at what we call our catalog auctions, the more prominent events, the bigger events, which I will narrow down to really three, would be our biggest auction of the year, Kissimmee, Florida, always in January. That is the world's largest collector car auction. We typically have around 3,500 cars do well over $100 million in sales. It runs 10 days. It's an immense auction. Then our Indianapolis auction, which is usually held in May, due to COVID this year, we've got that scheduled for July 10th through the 18th. Looks like that date's going to hang in there just fine, by the way. That is also referred to as a catalog auction. And then our Monterey auction, which is typically held in August. Those three auctions will attract really high-quality, high-dollar, super investment-grade A-list cars, while 
our other auctions will also get a lot of great Corvettes, but typically won't have the type of percentage of the real high dollar cars. Our national level catalog events seem to attract the higher end Corvettes and the entry and mid-level Corvettes are prominent and in great quantities at virtually all of our auctions. That sounds good. If someone wants to buy a Corvette at a Mecham auction, whether it be a C1 or a C7, is there any advice that you would give them what to look for, how to buy, et cetera, et cetera? You bet. The first step always in researching the marketplace for a Corvette of interest is going to be to go to Mecham.com. Our website is so easy to navigate. There's a car search feature that only takes a couple of clicks and pokes to be able to access to that can bring you right up to speed on anything we've got coming up for future auctions, including pictures and descriptions. That's a great way to start. Those pages can also be printed out. Just click once on the print tab and boom, you're going to be able to print that out. So we see a lot of people at our auction, Steve, that come to the event with a clipboard, with the copies of those sheets, those information sheets, looking for the specific car that they can look at and preview before that car rolls across the auction block. Now, we don't allow any test drives. That's not going to happen. But certainly, folks have access to the cars. They can look in the interior. They can open the doors, trunk, hoods. They can bring any type of research material that they want. I'm a real huge fan. By the way, this is not a pitch. This comes from the heart of the Corvette Black Book. Mike Antonick does an incredible job of putting out that little pocket-sized Corvette fact book. Every Corvette enthusiast needs to have that as part of their trivia collection. But anyway, we see guys with that in flashlights and inspection mirrors, and they're looking at the cars underneath. If a Mecham representative or the owner is by the car, they can ask permission to start the car if they want to listen to the engine. But here's an even better tip that I recommend. All of the cars at a Mecham auction will make their way by driving up to the auction block. Okay? So what that means is, is for a period of time, maybe up to an hour, these cars are going to be started. They're going to be moved under their own power. Now, granted, just walking speed. But what a perfect time for somebody of interest in that particular car to walk along the side of it looking for smoking, leaking, and that could be coolant or it could be oil or it could be anything else, transmission or it could be rear end, listen to any squeaks or brake noises or whatever, have a chance to look inside, look at the gauges, you can verify the working, talk to the Mecham driver, ask him questions, how does it seem to run, blah, 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 and get some feedback that way. You'd really be surprised at how much information from a good visual inspection and then spending some time just walking next to that car as it makes its way up to the auction block, you can learn about. Now, that having said, a lot of these cars, as we know, they come out of collections. And a lot of collectors don't put a lot of miles on these cars. In fact, they may not even drive these cars, or if they do, it might only be once or twice a year. And we all know what long periods of inactivity does to any car. It's not necessarily good for it. Yeah, it keeps the miles off of it, but it also has a tendency to dry out seals and different things, hoses. So what I recommend to somebody, if they're going to drive one of these cars and not just put it in a collection again, a lot of buyers do, probably a third of all the vehicles entered at Mecham and ultimately bought by a buyer at Mecham will simply just go back into another collection as opposed to something that might be driven. Anyway, if you're going to drive it, after you buy it, take it to a Corvette or another brand-specific mechanic that's well-versed on the intricacies of that particular car. A lot of great Corvette shops around the country, for sure independent shops. Take it to the guy, drop it off, have them put the car up on the lift, 
and have him go over it with a fine-tooth comb, kind of like uh, you do with an aircraft with what's called an annual inspection, where they literally look at every nook and cranny and come up with a list of what that mechanic's opinion is that it might take to put this car into reliable use for a daily or a fair-weather driving. You're probably going to spend no way to know. You're probably going to spend a grand or two replacing dried out hoses and changing all the fluids and kind of going through it. But you know what? That's some of the best money you can spend to give you peace of mind that you're going to reduce the chance of the thing quitting on you going down the side of the road because all of a sudden the old fuel pump decided to take a dump from long periods of inactivity. So a lot of ways to protect yourself and to make sure that you're going to have an enjoyable experience with owning a vintage car, especially a Corvette. Especially a Corvette. All right, John, I've got a question that I don't understand about auctions. How come the car drives up onto the podium, but then it's pushed off afterwards? It's a great question, frequently asked, and there's actually a couple of very good reasons why we do that. Number one, we want the cars to drive up to the auction block because we want people to be able to see that the vehicle does drive and move under its own power reliably. So that's number one. We want to show that and let people know that the car does run and drive under its own power. After it sells, we no longer have that requirement. So then you say, well, okay, well, why do you push it off? Carbon monoxide it all has to do with making sure that we are being in compliance with the local fire marshal requirements on carbon monoxide. It is being monitored, and we want to keep it to an absolute minimum, not only for the Beacom staff that's working up on the auction block hour after hour after hour all day long, but also for the folks that are in attendance, spectators and our buyers and sellers as well. So what we do is we'll drive the cars up to the auction block, and then when they sell, we will go ahead and we will push them off and we'll get them away from where the bulk of the crowd is at, and then they will start back up again, and then they will drive to the post-auction parking area that's been designated. That makes total sense. We're going to take a quick break, but in segment number three, John and I are going to talk about the Mecham experience and why buying from the Mecham auction is so much fun. You're listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. Fact. According to the March of Dimes, 40,000 babies are born each year in the United States with heart defects. At Athletic Testing Solutions, we take that, well, to heart. ATS offers the ATS Heart Check, a series of non-invasive tests to identify possible hidden heart defects in your kid's heart. Frequently, the symptoms of sudden cardiac arrest are masked or misdiagnosed. The ATS Heart Check can help detect congenital heart problems or abnormalities that don't show up during regular checkups or a sports physical. Have you ever wondered about your child's heart health? The ATS Heart Check is a terrific option, and it gives you peace of mind that your child is heart safe. Sudden cardiac arrest claims on average 130 young lives each week. Don't let your kids be a statistic. The ATS Heart Check only takes 20 to 30 minutes and utilizes an EKG and echocardiogram ultrasound of the heart. Visit ATSHeartCheck.com to schedule your child today or call toll-free at 888-537-2597. 888-537-2597. You're listening to the Corvette Today Podcast with Steve Garrett. Thanks for listening to Corvette Today. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. I have today with me John Craman. You know John as JK. His partner on TV, Scott Hoke, calls him that affectionately. And John is a walking encyclopedia of car knowledge and the co-host of all the Mecham auctions on NBCSN. In this segment, we're going to talk about the Mecham auctions. John, let's talk about the buying advantages and just the advantages of Mecham auction as opposed to other auctions that are out in the United States. 
Well, there's a lot of them, Steve, but I think ultimately what it comes down to, and we're getting this from feedback from our customers, is the experience. And this even begins before the actual auction beginning with so much information available on the website and the amount of promotional material that we provide our catalogs and brochures and different things that we do, videos, television specials to promote our inventory and to sort of whet folks' appetites. But even beyond that, it's the experience at the auction of all the cars, like-minded enthusiasts being there as well. The term one-stop shopping has been used over the years for so many things, but boy, at a Mecham auction, that is so true. The quantity and the quality of the cars and the variety of cars, it's almost addicting. And folks over the years, since 1988, and this company has grown to be the world's largest collector car auction company because it simply is a fun, enjoyable, and satisfying way to spend a day or two buy a car, sell a car, or just come in and spectate. Now, one of the reasons that a lot of people may not realize, you know, why should I go to an auction to buy a car versus any other auction companies or other ways to do it is because many of these cars that are out there are simply not available anywhere else. Sellers now have come to the point where they realize that by taking a car to a Mecham auction, it is going to be marketed professionally to a huge audience, and it's going to be put in front of a lot of qualified buyers and the likelihood of having a fast, efficient, and safe sale for their pride and joy, that's our goal. That is our target. Number one, nothing happens without having great consignments and providing great service. Everything else that we do in regard to Mecham Auctions, including the television aspect of it, the entertainment side, is secondary. So I think we've developed a reputation over the years of being such an efficient way to do business. You don't have to worry about tire kickers coming to your door and wasting your time and scammers and different things. You call a Mecham consignment agent, you get the car entered, you bring it to the auction, you check it in, and at that point, it's up to the Mecham staff to take care of all the details from A to Z. The only thing that we ask our sellers, our consigners to do is to make sure to have that car at the auction as scheduled, and here's why. You cannot sell the car before the auction. These cars are so well promoted, we've got buyers coming around from the country in a lot of cases from around the world, and they expect to see the cars that we advertise there for sale for everybody to get a fair chance. So we do make it tough on our consigners. We call it a performance agreement where we make them responsible to make sure that the car is there. Now, in case of a hardship, a family emergency or something, obviously no problem with that. But if somebody consigns a car to Mecham Auction and we promote it, they better have that car there or they are going to be subject to enforcement of their performance agreement contract, which would allow us to recover some money as a penalty. So the plus side on that is, is it makes sure that a potential buyer looking at the website knows for sure that the cars that they see advertised and promoted are going to be at the auction, and they are going to have a fair chance at buying the car. We're not going to make deals before the auction. People call us up all the time. It's probably our number one question that, you know, that we have is, hey, I see this car you've got advertised on your website. What's the buy it now price? And we go, well, there is no such thing. That is so not fair for anybody, either for the buyer or for the seller. It will be coming to the auction. You're welcome to attend and bid on it. If they can't be there in person, they can bid on the car either via the internet or whether they can bid via telephone. We call that absentee bidding. Very easy, seamless techniques in place to be able to allow people that want to participate in that route to be able to do that. Represents a pretty small part of what we do, I would say maybe in the 5% or less range. But nevertheless, we do have folks that can't be in person or for whatever the reason you'd like not to. We can get them hooked up. 
But when the smoke clears, from a buyer standpoint, you're going to have a lot of great cars to choose from that you're probably not going to find available anywhere else. From a seller standpoint, we make it easy and we make it convenient for them to do business. There is some cost involved, Steve, so we don't do this for free. We charge an entry fee at an auction to be able to get the car in. That'll range depending on where the auction is at, the day it's going to run, the value of the car. We put all those parameters into place and we make a recommendation to our seller of what might be the best place to put the car. We call that inventory management, by the way. And an entry fee will run anywhere from $500 on up to $1,500, again, depending on many of the variables. And then if the car does sell, we collect a 10% commission on the hammer price of the car. The buyer also pays us a 10% commission on his end. So now you have an idea of how we earn our fees. If a car does not sell, there are no additional fees other than the entry fee that's paid in advance. And the seller just takes the car home with his title that has not been reissued or stamped or anything else. It's like he brought the car to a car show. We typically will sell about uh, 70% of all the vehicles that will roll up onto the auction block. And a pretty good percentage of those cars, maybe as much as 10%, are going to be sold on what we call bid goes on. If you watch the television show, like a lot of folks do, you'll see that a lot of the cars don't sell. But what we can't report on, because it typically happens after we're off air, is a lot of those cars will eventually sell. If a car sells, it gets a sold sticker on it, it goes to a sold area, it's a done deal. If a car does not sell, it gets a different sticker that indicates clearly that this car is still available. It does state on it what the high bid on the car was, and it gives instructions to head over to the folks at what we call the Bid Goes On. That's our trademark name for our post-sale guys. They can go over to the Bid Goes On and continue to work deals and present bids and offers on cars that had not yet been sold. So it's a great, fun, convenient way to either buy or sell or spectate. A lot of feedback we get is from folks, Steve, that will tell us it's the best car show they've ever attended. I like to say it's a car show with a pulse because it's not static like a car show. There's so much action and things going on. You can go out and walk around and look at the cars on display like a car show, but then you come back and back into the arena, hear the cars rumbling, see them moving. Every minute or two, there's a new car rolling up onto the auction block. We schedule about 35 cars an hour. So it's colorful. It's fun. It's exciting. It literally becomes a lifestyle for so many people. So many repeat customers and folks come back, earn relationships with them. And it's like a big family gathering where everybody's getting along, celebrating the love of automobiles. If I'm walking into the Mecham auction, John, and I'm sitting there and I'm spectating and I decide, you know what, I want to buy a car. How does somebody do that? Yeah, this is going to surprise you, Steve, because that does happen. That's a pretty common occurrence. And we can't make it too difficult for somebody that has found the car of their dreams and wants to bid on it and they're not pre-registered. No problem. We have an area set up where people can register to bid on the spot, and I'm going to very quickly outline for you what it takes to sign up for a bidder at a Mecham auction, what you're going to be required to do. So you'll go up to the folks at the bidder kiosk, and they will want from you a copy of a valid driver's license. They'll make a copy of that, and that's to prove who you are, that who you say you are is who you are, number one. Number two, we will ask for a major credit card or a $500 cash deposit, one or the other, not both. If you have a major credit card, we will put a $500 cash authorization, not a charge on it, just a cash authorization, or we'll take the $500 cash deposit and you are now qualified with no limit to the amount you can bid on at the Mecham auction. If you're the winning bidder, you will pay for the vehicle with a check. We don't take credit cards for the sale. You pay for the car with a check, and you will take that car home with you 
that same day. Conceivably, you could come into Amico Auction in the morning, no plan to buy a car, and you could literally drive that car away from Ecom Auctions that same day with just having those qualifications. Now, how are we protected? Because what we do is we've sold somebody else's car, and as soon as we receive payment from that buyer, we pay the seller. Typically, that occurs same day. Think about that for a minute. We're very, very trusting. Now, we do have a bit of a protection where we do hold the titles for two weeks, and we send the titles out to the new owners after the funds have cleared, Two weeks later, we send them out two-day UPS with the tracking number, knock on wood, never lost a title. That's kind of a win-win for everybody. But this all stems back to Dana Meekham's Midwest way of doing business, going back to 1988, where doing business on a handshake. Dana still is to this day, despite the fact that we're the world's largest, we do over $400 million a year in sales, doing business on trust and a handshake. If you say you've got the money in the bank to cover the check to buy this car, we're going to trust you. We like a bank letter of credit. We ask for it. It's not required. That's amazing. And that's really a Midwest way to do it. It's cool that you guys have never lost a sale. You never lost a title. Everything has gone smoothly after all these years. I think it stems from the fact that, generally speaking, folks that are involved in the collector car world, certainly in the Corvette world, there is a camaraderie and a commonality of desire and I would use the word ethics only in regard to the respect for other person's property. Everybody has an agenda. We understand that. Buyers want to get the best deal possible. Sellers want to get the most that they possibly can. All of us, everybody, that whole combination of folks are working together to make sure that, number one, buyers are getting what they think that they're getting. The Meekham staff works tirelessly. There's a whole full-time battery of car guys that are working on descriptions and vetting out the facts that are being provided to us from our consigners, making sure that that information is accurate. A lot of that information has to be changed and tweaked as we review it. That goes a long way because we're in a modern world. Social media is what it is. The bad news spreads really fast. And if folks were attending a Meekum auction and they were buying cars that were not as described or were disappointed with either the experience or the car that they bought, the word would be out there, would be out there instantly in various chat lines and forums and all the other social media sites. So this is an interesting combination. It's an interesting dynamic, probably not exclusive to the collector car or the Corvette world, but it's certainly a big part of what we do. Everybody wants to be a good citizen. Everybody's working to be a good player. They don't want to be known as one of those guys. If we get into a situation and we see a particular entry starting to unfold into a potential controversy, we just nip it in the bud. Life is way too short. Meekum is way too big of a company. Dana Meekum it holds all of us individually responsible for maintaining the highest level of ethics possible. And I think that's the reason, Steve, why more so than anything else, such as the exposure of Meekum on the television show, all the auctions we do, it's that trust factor that people know they can come to a Meekum auction, buy or sell, and they're going to get treated fairly, and they're going to have fun, and they're going to either end up buying or selling a great car. That's for sure. John, with the coronavirus situation going on right now, where are the Mecham auctions going to be scheduled now for the rest of this year? That's a really good question, Steve, and it's still sort of in flux. I can report a couple things that we do know. We have actually canceled one auction. That would be our Portland, Oregon auction that was being scheduled for June 12th and the 13th. That auction has been postponed this year. But the good news is, is our second largest auction and the granddaddy of all Meekum auctions, referred to as Dana Meekum's original Spring Classic, 
always held in Indianapolis mid-May, the week before the Indy 500, has been rescheduled to July 10th through the 18th. And it's been now expanded and grown from a target of 2,000 cars to 2,500 cars based on our thoughts of interest, pent-up demand, and the fact that we've got an extra couple of months to enter consignments for that. As far as for the rest of the Mecham schedule that folks can always take a look at at Mecham.com, we are tirelessly working with the various venues, counties, and states, and local authorities to see if it looks like the venues are going to be available for Mecham Auction and if Mecham Auction is going to be able to come in and put the parts in place, uh, whether it be social distancing or masks or whatever we need to do to do what we do best. Now, that having said, I can tell you right from the top, conversation I had two days ago with Dana Mecham. Dana Meekum wants the word to be known to everybody that it is his goal to make sure that we try to get in as many of the Meekum auction events as possible this year. We're just not willy-nilly going to start chopping events. We eat and live and breathe for our customers, both buyers and sellers, in regards to being able to bring all of us together to do what we all enjoy so much. And I can just tell you that right now, everything is being done to keep as many of these auctions on the schedule as possible. And always refer to the latest information that's going to be right on our website, on our schedule at Mecham.com. That sounds great, John. I'm glad to hear that they're working towards a safe environment for everybody coming to the auction. And we'll hopefully have quite a few before the year ends. John, thank you so much for being on Corvette today. I can't tell you how much I appreciate all your wisdom, all your knowledge, and all the fantastic stories. Steve, my pleasure. Uh, Always enjoy hanging out with you, and we'll have to get together next time Mecham is in Kansas City. I'd love to see you, buddy. I'd like to thank our flagship sponsors once again, Hendrick Chevrolet of Kansas City at ChevyUSA.com and also MidEngineCorvetteForum.com. And thank you for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. You've been listening to Corvette Today with Steve Garrett. If you'd like to contact Steve with any thoughts on the podcast or ideas for guests on Corvette Today, you can email him at stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. That's stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. Garrett has two R's and two T's. Or connect with Steve on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using at stevegarrettdj. Thanks again for listening to Corvette Today.